A little over 10 years ago, I underwent emergency surgery. My colon had perforated or broken open following a bout of diverticulitis, and it was an unusual and urgent situation, a situation that required a colon resection, a week in the hospital, and then a recovery period that lasted the better part of six weeks or so. In the middle of that recovery process, a couple that we had been friends with uh, for a number of years asked if they could stop by and visit. And at the end of that brief visit, they gave us an envelope with money in it, saying that God had laid it upon their hearts to give us this to help offset the medical costs that insurance didn't cover. Now, this was not the first time that God had graciously provided a surprise blessing to Christy and me, nor was it the last time. But I remember my heart in that moment being deeply stirred with gratitude, with faith, with worship. I just wanted to give God praise for what he had provided. I remember feeling covered by God, kind of the sense that he was watching over us. And I felt cared for by his people, sacrificially cared for. It was a wonderful experience of God's faithful provision through other people, one that I have reflected on from time to time. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever received an unexpected financial or material blessing of some kind, something that helped to meet a practical and urgent need? And do you remember the feelings you felt when you first received it? Or maybe you were one who has given a gift to someone, prompted by God to give a gift, only to find out it arrived at just the right time as an answer to someone else's prayer. Do you remember how that felt to be the giver of a gift following God's prompting? I bring this up because we have come to the final section of the New Testament book of Philippians. And in the passage we are looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul is turning his attention to one of the main reasons that he wrote this letter in the first place. He wants to thank the Philippian church for the gift that they had provided. If you remember, Paul is writing this letter while he's under house arrest in Rome. And unlike our modern prison system, Rome did not provide for even the most basic of needs for their prisoners. If Paul needed food or extra clothing or a blanket or writing supplies, those items needed either to be purchased or purchased by Paul or provided to him by a friend on the outside. So Paul is under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. But when the Philippian church learned of Paul's imprisonment, they quickly gathered an offering, gave it to a man named Epaphroditus, and sent him on the 600-mile journey to Rome to deliver that gift to Paul and then to stay with Paul to help care for him while he was imprisoned. The gift was unsolicited. Paul never asked churches for funds to meet his personal needs. Never did. Paul was circumspect when it came to money matters, for there were always charlatans. 
nearby, kind of on every street corner, really, seeking to defraud people out of their hard-earned money. And he never wanted to give a hint of scandal. So even during those times when he raised money for poverty-stricken believers in other cities and in other churches, whenever those funds were collected, he made sure that people from the contributing churches escorted that money to those needy believers just so there would be no question about his integrity or his motives. But now, Paul sits in Rome and Epaphroditus has arrived with this sacrificial gift from the church in Philippi. Dear friends of Paul's. And Paul's heart is deeply stirred by all this, not only because of the gift, but even more by God's faithful provision to him. And his heart is stirred for the Philippians, this wonderful group of friends who have cared so much for him. And they have supported this work of his in the ministry. And so now in this final section of the letter, Paul reveals that the gift from the Philippians has strengthened his heart in five specific ways. As my heart is stronger, it's encouraged because of what you Philippians have done. Five specific ways his heart was strengthened. And going even one step further, these five benefits should bless not just the recipient, but the giver as well. Which means that Paul included this in his letter so that the hearts of the givers, the Philippian believers, their hearts would be strengthened along with his. So let's work our way through this passage and see what the Lord wants to teach us together this morning about the benefits of giving and receiving. In verse 10, Paul begins by saying that his heart is strengthened in gratitude. His heart is strengthened in gratitude. Let's look at verse 10 together. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So Paul begins this final portion of his letter with kind of a burst of joy. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. It is an eruption of thankfulness to the Lord for this unexpected gift collected in Philippi and then carried to Rome by Epaphroditus. Paul's attitude of gratitude is fueled by the generosity of these beloved friends who have loved Paul and his ministry more than words can really describe. He has, he has a relationship with them unlike any other church. But his attitude of gratitude is also fueled by the willingness of a man like Epaphroditus who would put his life in Philippi on hold and make this 600-mile journey to Rome, uh, to Rome to bring the gift to him. And so Paul rejoiced greatly. Paul's next words, he says, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. These words, sometimes they have been interpreted as being kind of harsh, almost as if Paul is saying, well, finally, <laughs> you've renewed your concern. It's about time that you showed some concern for me. Uh, but that is not the tone of this at all. It's been interpreted that way by some, but that's not what 
Paul is saying. And his original readers never would have read that into the text. The sense is more accurately rendered like this. Paul says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord that once again you have shown your concern for me. Once again, you've shown your concern for me. The gift was unsolicited and unexpected, and it stirred Paul's heart at a very deep level. Paul continues, he says, Indeed, you have been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. Paul knew, because of this long-standing friendship, he'd been friends with this church for 10 years, and Paul knew that their concern for him had never wavered, and Epaphroditus certainly would have assured him of that when he arrived in Rome with the gift. But the Philippians had had no opportunity to translate that concern into some kind of action. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that the Philippian church was facing extreme poverty, severe poverty. And so it's quite probable that they simply had no money whatsoever to share. It's also possible that the distance to Rome was a significant barrier. That was 600 miles. took 40 days to make that journey. Or maybe it just took a longer time than they thought to find a person who would be available to put life on hold and make that journey with the gift. We're not sure of the reason why there was this delay, but Paul was understanding, and Paul trusted God's timing in all of this. And so he simply responded by rejoicing greatly in the Lord, grateful for the Lord's surprising and ample provision. And the Philippians likewise could be grateful that God had indeed provided funds for them to give when the time was right so that they could send this gift to Paul. Friends, any time that we are blessed to either be the giver of a gift or the recipient of a gift, it is right for us to respond with gratitude. It's appropriate for us to respond with genuine thankfulness. And I say this, that we should be thankful not only to the sender of the gift, though we certainly want to express our thanks to them, but not only to the sender, but also to God himself. For it is God who ultimately provided the means that were, you know, for the funds that were sent to you. And, he, and it's God who stirred up in the hearts of the givers to be generous with their resources. And so James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Remember, every good and perfect gift comes to us from our Father in heaven. And so we want to be quick and, um, and abundant, generous with our gratitude, whether we are the giver or the recipient. Now, in verses 11 through 13, Paul's heart is strengthened in contentment. It's strengthened in contentment. Look at these verses. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him 
who gives me strength. So Paul's expression of joy and gratitude is quickly followed by a qualifier. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. In a way, Paul is being a little, you know, extra careful here. He doesn't want them to misunderstand his intention. Paul wants the Philippian church to know how grateful he is and how this gift has helped him and blessed him because he knows of the severe poverty they are facing and the huge sacrifice they made to send him this gift. But, but when he tells them how much this means to him, he doesn't want them to think that he's trying to coax another gift out of them. Does that make sense? So he quickly says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Paul says, I have learned instead to be content. I've learned to be content. And contentment, this was a widely discussed virtue in ancient Greek philosophy. They talked a lot about this. And Aristotle defined contentment as possessing all things and needing nothing. Possessing all things and needing nothing. And over time, contentment became tied to the idea of self-sufficiency. I can be self-sufficient. I don't need anything. I don't need anybody. All the resources that I need to cope with life are found within myself. Self-sufficiency. And Paul rejected this idea as worldly and, non, uh, and foolish nonsense. And he replaced it instead with three simple ideas about contentment. Let me tell you about true contentment, Paul says, because it's not what the Greek philosophers think it is. The first thing Paul says about true contentment is that it is learned. True contentment is learned. It is not a natural human response. It is not a default value in the human heart. It is learned. In the school of contentment, we learn, we have to take some classes together if we're going to learn contentment. And so in the school of contentment, we learn that all things belong to God. And what we have is a gift from Him. We learn to be thankful for what we have so that we don't become envious of what other people have. We learn to ask for wisdom so that we use what we have wisely and carefully so that it will last and endure. We recognize God as the ultimate provider. We're trusting only in him to meet our needs. And we pray for the grace to let go of the desire for things that we don't have yet. We just let that go. These are important lessons learned in the school of contentment. And as we do, contentment is formed in our heart. And it's formed as we experience both times of plenty and times of poverty. Paul had to learn to be content. Apostles didn't get a pass on this. So he had to go through times of plenty and times of want in order to learn to be content. I have had to learn to be content. Because pastors don't get a pass on this either. Just a quick example from my own life. Part of the reason I have learned to be content with whatever roof God has provided over my head is because one summer in my college years, I lost my job and my housing on the same day. 
and I had to sleep in my car for a couple of nights, and it was fully loaded with all my junk from my dorm room. Uh, so, uh, not the most comfortable of situations. But like you, like you, I have to learn contentment. It doesn't come naturally. And I learn it like you do through the ups and downs of life. And the truth is, I'm still learning contentment today. But contentment is learned. Second, Paul says true contentment is not dependent upon our circumstances. True contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. Greek philosophers would have said, if you have enough and you don't need anything, then you can be content. But Paul says, no, contentment's not dependent upon circumstances. It is not experienced only in times of plenty when we're well fed, like the Greek philosophers taught. True contentment, genuine contentment is achieved when we learn to be satisfied no matter our circumstances, even in times of want and hunger and other deficiencies. Paul says in any and every situation, we can learn to be content, satisfied, even comfortable. We can even learn to be comfortable in those situations. Our joy does not require that every discomfort and inconvenience be removed. It doesn't. So even though Paul was imprisoned, he was chained at the wrist to a Roman guard, he was facing the very real possibility of execution, and he had envious believers trying to undermine his ministry on the outside as they tried to make a name for themselves. But none of that None of that robbed Paul of his joy. He could still feel content. He could still be satisfied. He could even feel a measure of comfort because true contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. It rises above. Third, Paul says true contentment is found in Christ. True contentment is found in Christ, not adequate provision. And this is the secret of contentment. I can do all things, everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is the secret. And friends, this is not only the secret for contentment. This is the secret to the whole Christian life. Our ability to have the attitude of Christ, to model the behavior of Christ, and even to uh, embrace or to adopt the heart of Christ. All of this is found as we lean in and depend on Jesus, who gives us the strength to live in love as he lives and loves. Now, just as a quick side note, some people have used verse 13 to suggest that they can accomplish anything they set their mind to. I can do all things. I can do everything through Christ. But is that what Paul means when he writes that? Does Paul mean he could overpower the guard and break the iron chain and escape from his prison because, Paul, because Christ would give him the strength? Is that really what Paul is saying? No, it's not. The text is literally translated, I can do all these things through Christ. I can do all these things. What Paul means is that we can do everything God asks us to do because Christ will give us the strength 
to do it. Did you catch that nuance? We can do everything God asks us to do because Christ will give us the strength to do it. I can do all these things, he said. So whatever challenge or difficulty you are facing today, it might be medical, it might be emotional, it might be financial, or maybe it's a marital challenge or a parental challenge or a vocational challenge. Whatever challenge or difficulty you are facing today, and we're all facing something difficult, isn't that true? We can depend on Christ to faithfully supply the strength to do not whatever we want to do. We can trust Christ to faithfully supply the strength to do what God is asking us to do in those situations. And that, friends, is a tremendous promise. Tremendous. One that I am leaning into heavily these days because pastors are not immune to difficult situations. In verses 14 to 17, Paul's heart is strengthened in partnership. Paul's heart is strengthened in partnership. Look at these verses. He says, Yet it was good of you to share with me in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Some of you will remember back in the first chapter of the book, in verses 3 through 5, Paul talked uh, Paul told the Philippians how his prayers were filled with joy because of his partnership with them in the gospel. Do you remember that? The Philippians had loved Paul. They'd prayed for him. They supported him and the work that he was doing. And you remember how deeply encouraged Paul was by their support. Well, in these verses, Paul now returns to this partnership theme because the Philippians have once again shared in Paul's troubles. He said, it's good for you to share in my troubles. It was kind of you. They had contributed, not just at a spiritual level, praying for and encouraging Paul, but they had also contributed at a practical level, sending money and materials, any needed supplies that he had. They had gone beyond mere sentiment into actual investment. The Philippian believers had become co-laborers. They now had skin in the game. They were part of this with Paul. Their hands were dirty. They were elbow deep in it with him. And that formed a very close bond of fellowship. It bound their hearts together. And Paul says in verses 15 and 16, we've enjoyed this partnership since the early days when you were first acquainted with the gospel. When Paul and Silas had come to Philippi 10 years earlier, the hearts of those brand new believers were so touched by the gospel. Do you remember? So grateful that Paul and Silas had come to them. 
They did what no other church in Macedonia had done. They sent them off with a financial gift. And then while Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, which was the next town that they had gone to, the Philippians sent them additional funds, more than once, to meet their needs. See, the Philippians had given immediately and repeatedly. And so now, now, as Paul sits in Rome, Epaphroditus has shown up, bringing from the Philippians yet another gift, one that was given this time sacrificially. And I think Paul's heart must have gone on tilt, just realizing how much these people loved him and how much he loved these people. More than the gift itself, I think Paul's heart was deeply stirred by the Philippians' devotion to him. They were so devoted. But again, Paul does not want these dear friends to think that his letter is just kind of a veiled request for more. So he quickly assures them again in verse 17 that he's not looking for another gift. Rather, he is looking for what might be credited to their account. When Paul says this, he's using financial language from the marketplace. And he's reminding the Philippians that there is a spiritual blessing that accrues with their giving. Spiritual investments yield eternal dividends. Spiritual investments yield eternal dividends. It's a heavenly reward, Paul says. I'm looking for the heavenly reward that you're going to receive. This is what Paul was really interested in. Now, Paul sincerely appreciated their gift and the help that he received from it. But the highest value in Paul's mind was what the gift revealed about their heart. The Philippians' generosity was concrete proof in Paul's mind. Concrete proof that God was completing the good work in them that he had started. And like a loving father receives a gift from their child, Paul appreciated the gift, but he cared even more about what was happening in their hearts. And he found himself rejoicing for the spiritual, heavenly, and eternal blessings that would accrue to their, to their heavenly account. So Paul's heart was strengthened in this partnership. Fourth in verse 18, Paul says, his heart was strengthened in worship. Paul's heart was strengthened in worship. Verse 18 says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So in verse 17, Paul had assured them that he was not looking for another gift. Now in verse 18, he assures them even further, the gift you sent with Epaphroditus was more than enough, more than enough. I am amply supplied. I've received full payment, Paul says. And when Paul said, I received full payment, this was actually business language or commercial language that talked about receiving a, a receipt stamped paid in full. That's the idea. Paul says, your gift, this letter that I'm sending to you is like a receipt that's stamped paid in full. I, I am fully supplied, amply supplied. 
And so when Epaphroditus carried Paul's letter back to Philippi, the letter itself would confirm that Paul had received the gift, that Epaphroditus had faithfully carried out the mission that he had been assigned, and that no more was needed. Paul was amply supplied. And Paul's heart was strengthened in worship because he recognized their gift as an offering to the Lord. Yes, it was a gift to Paul, but it was an offering first to the Lord. And Paul here uses sacrificial language. He says their gift is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. These three adjectives leave no doubt about how Paul feels. What you have done, Paul says, this is a first-class sacrifice to the Lord. It's an act of worship, really. You think you're just sending me some materials and some financial help? No, no, no. This was an act of worship, holy to the Lord. And God is the true recipient of what you have given. And it caused Paul to erupt in worship. His heart just exploded in worship, which is back in why back in verse 10, he said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Because Paul's heart was just erupting with praise. And now finally, in verses 19 and 20, Paul says that his heart is strengthened in faith. His heart is strengthened in faith. Look at these verses. He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It becomes clear in this passage that Paul does not see the Philippians' gift simply as coming from Philippi. It is so much more than that. He recognized the gift primarily as a provision from heaven, from the hand of a good and generous God. The Philippians were simply the conduit through which God's provision had flowed. Because of their faithful, worshipful, sacrificial, and Christ-like contribution to the ministry, Paul was confident that the Lord would bless them, that God would respond by meeting all of their needs. God would remember and reward all that the Philippians had done. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 6, verse 10, God will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to do so. God will not forget those things. And he will reward it. Paul was absolutely assured of this truth. And so he penned these words at the close of his letter. This verse which has been memorized by millions and strengthened the hearts of believers all around the world. My God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now like other promises in the Bible, this verse is often misquoted and misapplied. Some people kind of have a mental image that there's this treasure house in heaven full of health and wealth and happiness, just waiting for believers to unlock it with faith and receive riches to their heart's content. Certain health and wealth preachers like to claim that if you'll send them your cash, it will open the floodgates of heaven, allowing you to experience riches and wealth and happiness. But that is not at all what Paul has in mind with these words. It's not what he means. Verse 19 says, God will supply our need, not our greed. 
Paul is not promising that God will meet our every desire and wish and dream. That's not what Paul means. In the context of chapter 4, Paul is declaring that as we follow the Spirit's leading, as we faithfully give as God instructs us, and as we serve as conduits through which God's generosity towards others can flow, then God will be pleased and will faithfully supply whatever we need, whatever we need. One pastor said it this way. He said, believing in God's ability to amply supply the needs of his people frees us up to give offerings generously to the work of the Lord without endless anxiety about our future needs being met. Some of us have the, the, the temptation to reduce our giving or withhold it altogether for the simple reason that if we give it, we're worried that God might not come through and provide for us what the offering could have purchased. In some ways, it just boils down to a faith issue, doesn't it? Do we trust God to provide or don't we? Friends, listen, and please hear me say this. God is far more concerned with raising up his children than he is raising money. Can you hear that? God is far more concerned with raising up his children than he is raising money. You see, every time God prompts you to give, whether that's at the offering here at church, or maybe it's in the support of a missionary, or maybe it's to help sponsor a child, or maybe it's to contribute to a fundraiser, or a food drive, or a clothing drive, whenever God prompts you to give, our faith is being stretched and tested. And when we give as God leads us, we begin to demonstrate that our trust is in God, our provider. And that, friends, is an act of worship. This is why what the Philippians had, this is what the Philippians had done. They had given sacrificially as God led them. And this is why Paul said their gift was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. As we give, whenever God prompts us to give, in whatever situation that is, when God prompts us to give, as we do so, our faith is deepened over time. Our confidence in God's providing power grows because we begin to experience that power in our life as God responds and meets our needs. Friends, God asks us to give not because he needs our money, but because he wants to increase our ability to trust in him. And so he asks us to give back to him a portion of what he provides and give that to his ongoing kingdom work in the world. And he does this so that we learn to walk with him by faith, trusting that he will meet our needs in the future. Warren Wearsby, again, who's one of my favorite pastors and authors, he said, he paraphrased Paul this way. He said, you met my need, and God is going to meet your need. You met one need that I have, kind of a single situation that I'm in the middle of, but my God will meet all of your needs. You gave out of your poverty, but God will supply your needs out of his riches in glory. 
when the child of God is in the will of God, serving for the glory of God, then his every need will be met. Every need will be met. Hudson Taylor, who was a famous missionary to China, I've read a couple of his uh, biographies. Hudson Taylor said this, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never lack for God's supply. That's so true. Because our God will supply according to his riches in glory. When Paul received from Epaphroditus the gift sent from the Philippian church, his heart was strengthened. It was strengthened in gratitude, in contentment, in partnership, in worship, and in faith. And this is exactly what God intends. Not only for the recipient, not only for Paul, but also for the giver as well. Which means 600 miles away, the Holy Spirit was also at work in the heart of the Philippian church. And he was strengthening their heart at the same time. When they collected that money for Paul, he was strengthening their hearts in gratitude for God's provision. He was strengthening their hearts in contentment with their current level of provision. He was strengthening the sense of partnership and ministry with Paul. He was strengthening their worship for God's faithfulness and his providing power. And he was strengthening their faith in God's ability to meet their needs and still today, as God leads each of us uh, through experiences of both giving and receiving, he is doing so to strengthen our hearts in the same ways. Now, in verses 21 to 20, 23, Paul closes this chapter and this letter. And he says, Paul says, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. And all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Greet all the saints, Paul says. This literally means greet every saint. Greet every saint. And honestly, I think as Paul wrote those words, faces and names came to his mind. Beginning with Lydia and her family. He'd met her down by the, by the river. And then maybe the jailer and his family, kind of that second family of converts 10 years earlier. And then over the years, the church had grown such that there were now overseers and deacons. And I'm sure Paul brought to his mind their faces, their names, and their families. Paul loved this church more than words can describe so that even the farewell of his letter to them is personal, it's heartfelt, it's endearing, I think Paul is bringing their names and faces to his mind. And then he says, the brothers who are with me send greetings. You know, of course, that's Timothy and probably a few others. And then he says, um, he sends greetings from the saints in Rome, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul doesn't necessarily mean these are blood relatives of the emperor. That's not what he means. Um, it's, it's more likely the slaves and servants who worked in the emperor's household probably even some of the guards, maybe some of those who had been chained to Paul had come to Christ, and they're now sending their greetings to the church in Philippi. And I think Paul included this for a reason. You remember the Philippians were now facing persecution from the Roman citizens in Philippi, and life was becoming very difficult for them. And I think Paul wanted to encourage the church in Philippi 
that the gospel was on the move in Rome. In a way, I think Paul have been, in a way, I think Paul may have been saying, I know you're facing hardship and adversity, and it's coming from powerful and influential people there in Philippi. But just so you know, just so you know, Paul says, the gospel is penetrating the Roman power structures. It's infiltrating even into Caesar's household. And those who are being changed send you their greetings. Be encouraged, Paul says, for the political power has no power to stop the gospel. Political powers have no power to stop the gospel. And I just want you to be encouraged, Paul says. And then Paul closes his letter with these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And we will close with them too. Let's pray. And then the worship team will come and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, it is with a joyful spirit, with great rejoicing that we thank you this morning for this message from Philippians. We recognize, Lord, that uh, for 11 weeks, for 11 weeks, you have shown yourself to be a providing God. You have provided 11 messages out of this letter that have been encouraging to us and uh, challenging to us. They have emboldened us. They have drawn us closer to you. They have moved us closer to each other. Our hearts are being changed because of what we are learning from your word. We are grateful. You are a providing God and you have shown yourself to be so 11 weeks in this series. God, I pray that as you continue to lead each of us into giving and receiving experiences, God, I pray that the benefits of that would be transforming our hearts, that we would become people who are growing in gratitude and contentment and a sense of partnership with your work in the world, that our worship is becoming more intense and our faith is getting stronger. God, do not let us leave this room and this sermon and this series unchanged, unmoved. God, may our hearts continue to be transformed so that we become more and more like Christ. May our hearts be teachable and soft and pliable and flexible as you work with us. And God, I pray that as you have begun a good work in us, that you would be faithful to complete it. And as we go through difficult circumstances, remind us each day that we can do all that you ask us to do because Christ gives us the strength to do it. We want to be your people. We want to love you and reflect you well to the world around us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.